are there any submarine movies that are actually accurate? Like Hunt for Red October, you know, Das Boot, like any any submarine movies that are actually good? Uh, no. Welcome to the On the Edge podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, it's Scott Groves with the On the Edge podcast, and we're talking to my new friend, Max Herrera, who went from a nuke sub technician, and I never know whether it's nuclear or nuclear, or why I can't say the word correctly, so that's fine, <laughs> I'm a moron, uh, a technician on a nuke sub to being a realtor, which has to be a totally normal career path, and in our attempt this year to talk to more business professionals, realtors, lenders, financial professionals, CPAs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I kind of put the word out on Facebook and an old high school buddy of mine who was in the Navy with you, I believe, um, hit me up and he's like, man, you got to meet this guy, Max. He's super dynamic, great guy, worked on a nuke sub. I'll just say nuke sub so I don't have to pronounce the word. And uh, and now works in real estate investing and he's a realtor and he's just killing it out in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. And I'm like, oh, funny story. I got a buddy who's uh, moved from Central California to Knoxville, Tennessee. He's flipping properties. So maybe something in common there. And I was like, yeah, I just, I, I have to talk to a guy who was um, smart enough to work on reactors and chose real estate. Uh, so welcome to the show, Max. And uh, other than the little bit I know about you from Instagram, you know, wife, two kids, uh, obviously Naval Academy background. Uh, what's your story, man? How how did you grow up? Where'd you come from? How'd you join the Navy? And uh, let's go from there. Yeah, sure. So first of all, thank you so much for uh, inviting me on here. I'm very happy to be here. Um, so yeah, background, I... Um, Way back, my dad is Venezuelan, so I have some Spanish side to me. My mom was born here in the States, and he truly lived the American dream where he got to come at the age of 17 here to Knoxville, Tennessee, went to the University of Tennessee on scholarship, um, and really start from nothing and really build it up. And so he's always had uh, such a huge respect for uh the u.s in general and the opportunities and uh, i kind of grew up just hearing his story and how much freedom he did have uh in his career and he's very successful uh, engineer as far as you know education and his uh, specific field but um i kind of took that and i was like man that's so unique and uh such a cool opportunity to be in a country where uh, you have these opportunities that uh, you don't really get everywhere else. You can't really start. Um, you know, I don't have any experience, but the uh, the ability to just have that. Uh, there's no ceiling on your your growth here. So I wanted to um, do my part in um, protecting that freedom. So I was really into engineering and math and science and everything. And uh, somehow through soccer got turned on to the Naval Academy and had a, an older friend who uh, went to the Naval Academy and then uh, joined. So did that, got my engineering degree uh, from the Naval Academy in electrical engineering and joined uh, submarines as a submarine officer and uh, did power school prototype, which is part of the training pipeline to get to be a submarine officer on some submarines and did a few deployments and uh, really loved the mission, 
but not so much the life and not what I uh, wanted to do long term for family. And there's a lot more details in there and everything. And so. And how long um, did you serve? So after the the Naval Academy, I graduated in 2014 and I got out in 2022. So just a few years ago. Uh, So eight years outside the Naval Academy. And what I think a lot of people who weren't uh, active duty military, thank you for the service, by the way, I I was in the army, I was an enlisted guy. And uh, what I think a lot of people don't know about the military is that when you're an enlisted guy like me, you sign a contract, you're in for four years, they can do very little to keep you in after four years in one day. But when you're an officer, you serve at the pleasure of the military, right? Like, like you have to ask to leave. Yes. And then to be honest, that's kind of what happened to me was uh, it was during COVID when I initially submitted my resignation and it takes anywhere from nine to 12 months. And the world was so uncertain that they kind of hit a like a temporary pause button on letting people even get out because they didn't really know what would happen. Uh, and it took it takes so long to train a submarine officer that they wanted to keep as many in as possible. And I mean, it. I, that's kind of what I was told, but <laughs> long story short, yeah, it happened to me where they didn't let me out exactly when I wanted to get out. So I had to stay, uh, it ended up being a little bit longer, but yeah, I was hoping to get out before the birth of my son, but I didn't. Luckily I was here in Knoxville when, when he was born, I didn't miss it, but <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So you're exactly right. So um, I ha- we're going to get back to you in a minute, but I want to go back to your father coming from yeah. coming from Venezuela. How does a young man living in Venezuela, which obviously that country has not seen the best of times over the last decade or so. Uh, How does a young man from Venezuela end up at the University of Tennessee to become a volunteer? And I don't mean a volunteer in like the adjective. (laughs) I mean, for those that aren't college football fans, the Tennessee, the Tennessee football team is the volunteers. That's your mascot. Um, So how does a boy from Venezuela be like, yeah, Knoxville, Tennessee? Yeah, so from the stories he tells, um, so he was, he's ex- the smartest man I've ever met. Uh, he, back in the, I guess it was the 70s when he came here, uh, Venezuela had a bunch of like oil money. Their economy was kind of booming and everything. And so they were making all these connections. And he actually came here as a part of like a lottery system for doing well in school and testing well. Uh they sent him here and he signed up for the program to be an exchange student and was here when he was like 16 and fell in love. He just randomly matched with Knoxville. I think it was a little bit outside Knoxville, but he loved it. And the mountains, cause it was uh, in a very mountainous part of Venezuela. And so you can see, always see the mountains over here and they just reminded him of uh, Venezuela. So uh, he got in a bunch of other places, I think five or six other places with great scholarships, but he uh, turned down some better schools, honestly, for just the location of being here. And uh, yeah, that's amazing. And and not to go into a full political lesson of, uh, of Venezuela, but I'd love to hear somebody whose you know, father obviously is first generation from there. My limited understanding of Venezuela is basically they've got a ton of oil. Their economy is booming in the 70s and 80s. And then president after president just continues to win by promising more and more and more and more. And they basically 
my understanding, is socialized themselves into bankrupting the company, or sorry, bankrupting the country. Is that is that an accurate representation of what's gone on in Venezuela in you know a thirty second Reader's Digest review? Yeah, yeah. The only uh, tidbit uh, kind of gets more into politics and stuff, but it's very interesting um is that yeah the the country actually took over all of the oil industry themselves um and so that's the socialized part of it where they just like took all that resources and instead of it you know being the best business owners running it it was you know corrupt politicians and i use that term loosely because not everyone was obviously corrupt but that's what happened is um yeah there's tons of oil tons of money but it was getting funneled uh to the you know, certain people's pockets, essentially, and not to the people. And yeah, quality of life. And, you know, once you get powerful politicians in, it's hard to get them out in a society like that. So, um, you know, I don't know. I know it was so bad by the time that I was even born that uh, my older brother was able to go when he was an infant, but my parent I've never been, my dad's never been back since I was born. And uh, most of my dad's family was able to, to come here, live in the U S now, but yeah, it's not a, not a good place to be. I'd say. I'm sorry to hear that, man, but I'm glad that most of your family was able to make it up here and, you know, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> Thought, thoughts to the people that might still be stuck there. But anyway, coming coming back to you. Um, so you were born and raised in Knoxville, you know, uh, like felt called to service. What is, what is it like when you say being an officer on a submarine? Like what is the staffing on a modern day sub? I mean, I don't, I don't, that's, that world is so foreign to me. You could literally tell me there's 12 people on the sub or there's 22,000 people on the sub. And I'd be like, oh yeah, okay, <laughs> dude, clearly, duh. Um, so like, yeah. what, what, you know, without getting, giving away any top secret information, what, what does life on a sub look like? Like what's the stuff that I could find out on a YouTube video without getting you in trouble with the Navy? Yeah. So, um, just structure itself. There's several different types of submarines. Um, there's fast attack and boomers. It's kind of the simplest way to describe it. Uh, fast attack or just your, um, everyday submarine that's doing like top secret missions and going and doing really cool stuff. Uh, and then there's boomers, which is kind of slang term for the nuclear missile submarines. Um, and those are just, their mission is just, a as a nuclear deterrent, um, uh, and they're just staying hidden basically all and the time. Is, is it, I, I've read somewhere that like those, those boomer submarines that are off the coast of somewhere as a, as a nuclear deterrent, um, you know, they have enough firepower on them to, to basically wipe out the United States, something like that. I mean, there's like, there's like just an insane amount of nuclear firepower on each of those ships. It's, it's absolutely insane. And I've never, I've spent se like several days or weeks on board boomers as part of my training, but I was uh, deployed on fast attacks. But yeah, you're, I mean, I don't know the exact quantity, but, and it kind of varies, but yeah, it's, it's, it would blow anyone's mind how much is on just one submarine. And so on these fast attack subs, like what does the hierarchy look like? How many people do you have on there? Like officers to enlisted guys. And like, what is, what is life on a sub like? Yeah. So you have, uh, as far as officers and enlisted, there's anywhere from like 12 to 15 officers on board a fast attack submarine, depending on what type of mission you're doing. And then there's about a hundred, uh, enlisted, 
uh, upwards of 120 if you're on mission and need special people on board. Um, but yeah, so it's about 120 um, people on board at any given time. And there's only like 100 beds. <laughs> so the junior sailors have to, we call it a hot rack where you, you know, when one person wakes up to go to work, another person's getting in. So you're getting into a hot rack or a hot bed. Um, so the life on board a submarine is pretty brutal because there's only enough. So space is an issue and a, uh, a concern for everything that you do is pretty much a limitation. Uh, there's only enough people to do the job and really no extra people. So what that means is if you're on a six month deployment, you're working seven days a week, you know, you have an eight hour shift which is where you're on watch, like watching the nuclear reactor or, um, you know, watching sonar or command, giving commands for the submarine. Uh, but then the other 16 hours, you know, you have, you obviously have to eat and sleep, but you have all these other duties and responsibilities with sending messages or doing uh, maintenance or, and all these uh, you know, trainings, it's, it's just constant work and you don't get a single day off because there's nobody else to do a double shift basically. So, um, and like, if, and that's not even, if space is a concern, no. it's not like there's a weight room on the ship, right? Like you don't get to just like go to the gym and then go to a movie theater. Like I've, I've <laughs> seen, I've seen some of this crazy shit on like battleships where it's like a real floating city and they've got movie theaters and gyms and space is not a concern when you're on yeah. you know, a, a floating city, but on a sub, it, it just like, do you just go crazy? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's actually like all joking aside, that, that is a huge issue with submarines is you have a lot of people. Um, I, I don't want to say a lot. I mean, it's a very small fraction, but it's enough to, to make it sad where you do have the occasional people who do get depressed and, um, you know, commit suicide, which that's everywhere. But it, it is especially high in the submarine community. They do oh. a bunch of uh, screeners, like psychological screeners, but until you're away from home there's no communication and it also is a very stressful environment as far as far as like the technical aspect of it with it being a nuclear reactor and um all the qualifications are extremely intense to be able to do the different uh stations like stand watch um over the different stations of the reactor um and even the front so we call it the back half which is the engineering and then the front half is the um all the war fighting and navigation part of the submarine. Don't you have like, so. don't you have like Tesla auto drive where you can just leave the reactor alone for a few weeks and it'll be fine. Or is there like, do these things actually like, are you monitoring for the Oh shit moment? Or do these things actually have like maintenance protocol? Uh, yeah. So basically your goal, uh, on a submarine is just to stay operational and for anything that's continuously running, just like your car, there's maintenance. Mm. Um, and so the goal for submarines is to do everything preventatively. So you're doing it on your own schedule so you can plan it. Uh, so you don't have anything unexpected arise. But what that means is you're always doing preventative maintenance. Oh uh, so, yeah, <laughs> it's just around the clock. You have all sorts of uh, daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly uh, maintenance items that you have to do. But... <laughs> Uh, yeah, auto, uh, Tesla should definitely get involved in the submarine community. That, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> 
So uh, just so that you don't have to tell us anything that, you know, might get you in trouble or classified, I'm just doing a quick Google search here of like U.S. attacks up depth. And it's yeah. like 650 feet, 800 feet. Um, how deep can a U.S. nuclear sub crash? 3,000 feet. Like what? I, I don't I don't understand how tin can st stays uh, structurally sound at that pressure because if people have never worked underwater before or taken a scuba diving class like you can feel the pressure on your body and the difference in how quickly you breathe compressed air at 50 feet versus 100 feet and underwater 50 feet is nothing like you can look up at a boat that's 50 feet above you on the surface of the water and it feels like it's right there like you could reach out and touch it so when you're talking about like hundreds or thousands of feet I mean, is there any fear or do you just get over it? Like, do you, do you ever like sit there and like kind of have a freak out moment that you're like, I'm in this floating tin can way farther below the surface of the water than any human has ever survived? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you really thought about it at all, you would just be paralyzed into fear because <laughs> it's like most of the beds are like along the hole or the outside of the submarine. Um, and so you're inches away from that thousands of you know pounds of pressure um so yeah it is something that you think about every now and then um but it's also the amount of engineering and safety protocols that go into building a submarine are pretty um insane it's actually the same program that uh the shuttle the space shuttles use it's called the subsafe program um and where every single like component that goes into keeping the sub safe is controlled from when it's being smelted and molded into an alloy to the welds and everything is just monitored and um, obsessively controlled. And then on top of all that, you have a huge safety factor, which not a, a lot of other industries because <laughs> you don't have such high consequences if there's a failure but um you have a huge safety factor um so what that means what that turns into is like okay this material is good for ten thousand pounds but let's only ever get it up to five thousand pounds or something like that it, so you have a large margin for error give give people a science lesson because i was just again i'm just googling like what the normal like cruising depth of a <clears throat> u.s submarine is and they're like 300 meters which is like a thousand feet can you give somebody a, a science lesson like it, it, again anybody who's never like looked this stuff up or taken a scuba diving like class and understanding the the compression on your lungs just at 50 100 200 feet and when you have to start you know, breathing mixed gases because your lungs can't even process like normal CO2. Can, can you give people like a scale or a science lesson quickly of like when you're at a thousand feet, how much pressure is on the outside of, of that, of that submarine of that vehicle? Um, yeah. So it gets really uh, complicated because the further down you go, um, everything starts to matter. And this is like probably way too in the weeds for what you're asking, but even the salinity of the water matters because everything that affects the density affects how much pressure. So the temperature of the water, the salinity, um, and there's a few other things, but it all just goes into how much pressure. But uh, as far as a, a specific number, I mean, it would really just depend on how deep you are. And I, I don't have those, uh, like the equation memorized right now to give you a specific answer, but um, it is thousands of pounds uh, because it's the weight of like 
imagine a column of water, like a square inch of water, a thousand feet up, you know, that actually weighs a, t- a, a quite a lot. <laughs> so, and that's per square inch of pressure. Yeah. That's a good way to think about it. So if you just took a, if you just took a square inch of water, like, you know, basically what you can round off your thumb and your pointer finger to, and then you stacked, yeah. you stacked a thousand feet of that water on that one square inch that would just slice right through your body. Yeah. And then, you know, you have that, that's just per square inch. And so you multiply that by, it's bigger than a football field, which most people don't realize how big submarines actually are. But even the small ones are as big as football fields, um, as long. So yeah, it's, it's pretty insane. I might have been one of the depressed, like suicidal people that would have to get off the ship. Cause like just talking about it, like my palms are kind of sweaty. I'm like, what? All, that's, the, that's the worst work environment ever. Like you, you'll, yeah. you'll never get stressed out about a house closing like a day or two late. Cause you're like, dude, it's not like the house can implode. We're not a thousand feet right. underwater. It's going to be okay. The house is not bleeding. Yeah, exactly. And Honestly, it's such an interesting life because when you're in it, you're in it and your family, they do a good job of like supporting the families and everything. So all your other friends are also in it because, you know, that's deployments, but the workups and there's just tons of uh, time away and it's, it's just, it all adds up <laughs> to be very brutal and you don't realize what you're doing until you get out of it. And you're like, Oh my word. Like how did, how do people do that? Are, so. are you allowed to say what class of submarine that you were on? Yeah, I was on a Los Angeles class. Okay. How long can a Los Angeles class sub stay underwater? Let's just see what the public information is on this. Uh, 90 days. Yeah. What the fuck? Sorry. Yep. So like you don't oh, see the, you don't see the sun for 90 days. You you you're stuck with 100 people for 90 days. You're eating the same processed food like in the Matrix for 90 days, just some slop out of like 90 yeah. days, man. Guess what that 90 days is even based off of? What? If you had to get it's food. That's just the pretty much the most amount of food cuz you can you make your own water, you make all the electricity, all the energy from the naval, from the reactor. You, uh, oh, yeah, there's got to be a de- desalinization thing on, on board. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So you just run out of food. That's the only thing that limits you. And so you can like even push that 90 days in like certain circumstances. You can, you know, go up you know, another 30 days or so just based on how much food you can bring on or how many people you have on board. But oh yeah, that's, God. that's what they try to limit it to. And to answer the other part of that, the only people that, uh, have that oh sorry that light just went off no worries (laughs) the only people that have the ability to even see daylight is the person when you go to periscope depth on the periscope and they're seeing it through either mirrors or cameras or whatever so yeah you don't see there's no windows on the submarine there's no uh even messages or yeah, don't um, yeah. don't humans don't humans need like sunlight like whatever that is B twelve B fourteen one of those things like do you guys have yeah. like a, do you guys have like a tanning bed on there so you don't get sick? <laughs> uh, no, it's like they try to keep the circadian rhythm, which is you know the eight hours of sleep and all that. Um, but yeah, that they, so there's like dark times and light times where the lights are on or versus when they're off. Because every there's no sunlight when you're that deep or even on a submarine, so it's all artificial days and schedules and 
Uh, you just go off, you know, Zulu time. So you're not confused when you cross time zones and all that stuff. But- yeah, dude, this life is not for me. Hey, this quick interruption is brought to you by me, Scott Groves, the host of the On The Edge podcast. This podcast is brought to you by me. Uh, I'm a loan officer who can help you with a mortgage in all 50 states across the United States. I also coach loan officers. So if you are a home buyer who's looking to get a mortgage, if you're a realtor who's looking to partner with an awesome loan officer, or if you're a loan officer looking for coaching, get in touch with me. It's those sources of revenue that allow us to produce this podcast and get out a new episode to you every week for the last couple of years. So if you're looking for a mortgage, if you're looking for a mortgage lender to partner with, or you're looking for a mortgage coach, I'm your guy. Now back to your regularly scheduled programming. I, I think <laughs> I think had I not joined the Army and I joined the Navy, it'd be super cool to be like on a boat, you know, where you can see the ocean. That brings all types of other problems too, but like big floating city where you can see the sunshine and go work on the deck and... You screwed up, bro. You screwed up. You, you were too smart. Shouldn't have gotten that engineering degree. Well, that's what happened is uh, I really had no interest in going to submarines. And then the summer before my senior year of college at the Naval Academy, they uh, select a couple people and they send them to Pearl Harbor, to Hawaii. They kind of wine and dine you and they're like, oh, this is a sub life. And then, yeah, sure enough, that's not at all what being on a submarine. So, <laughs> Yeah, the, the recruiting is always different than the actual job, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so last question on your naval career and then uh, we'll move to like how you end up in real estate because that just is bonkers to me that, that uh, not a whole lot of electrical engineering going on in real estate. But, you know, when I was, uh, I signed up before I, before my senior year of high school and mm-hmm. at the time they had this thing where they were like, hey, if you sign up before for your senior year of high school and you show up for like four workouts or something that counts as your first year. So you only have to do a three-year enlisted contract instead of four years. Little did I know that that choice would like radically change the course of my life. Uh, Had I gone four years, things would have gone totally different. But um, it it was, it was three years. And then when I was hit with like the possibility to re-enlist, I was thinking to myself, it's like, well, if I do one re-enlistment and I re-enlist for six years and I go to ranger school and they give me a $50,000 bonus or whatever they were offering, it's like, well, now I got nine years in. At eight or nine years in, you just might as well do the 20 and get the pension. So what was the what was the thought process like for you where you're like, man, I've got four years in the academy. I've got eight years in. Officers make decent money. Like, what, what was the decision to not say like, eh, I can kind of ride this out for 12 more years and at least I got a pension and then I'll start my, you know, post-military real life. Um, what, what did that look like? Or what was the family decision or what was the, what was the breaking point for you where you decided to get out? Um, yeah, so there's actually several things. Um, so first of all, the pull to stay for me was just the technical aspect of it because it is very challenging. And so when you get good at it, it kind of like feels really good. And there's always the next step, or the next level, like in the military, they do a good job of like, here's your next goal. Like you got to qualify for this, or you got to, you go get this next rank by testing here. Um, so there's always something to be working towards, which is really cool. But then, yeah, the mission and um, doing, I got to do some really cool things. Um <laughs> that one day I'll be able to talk about, but yeah, that, that was just so rewarding. But the pull to leave was for me just so much stronger because the family life was pretty much non-existent. And I, luckily I didn't have any kids, but all the um, chiefs or the older uh, enlisted or older officers, 
they all, you know, had pretty rough family lives and, you know, they're missing the birds of their children or, you know, as they get older, they're missing all the like soccer games. And my parents were so supportive and involved in my life that I knew that like that wasn't an option for me. Mm-hmm. And then uh, also uh, my wife, she is a physician. And so she um, ha- also has her own full career. And that's what made it easy at the beginning is because we're both kind of focusing, you know, we met each other in high school, so we've been together forever, but we both had our own very demanding careers that we focused on. And then once we kind of got through toward the end of our like pipelines and trainings and when we got to live normal lives uh, is when kind of realized that, you know, I wanted to be more present and also uh, more uh fulfilled in a accomplishment sense because my biggest problem with the military in general is that there's especially in the submarine community is there's really no incentive for going above and beyond uh what you're required to do because people who are less performers than you or um you know, don't work as hard, barely show up for work. They're getting promoted before you just because they've been there longer. Right. And it's not because they're doing a better job. And that was frustrating for me because um, I like to work hard and I like to be rewarded for doing that. Um, so I just just kind of didn't really uh, match my philosophy as far as work goes long term either. I wanted yeah. to build something or put more energy into it. So and And out of the eight years that you were in, Um, how much time were you home? Um, so yeah, the first two years, uh, are all just training. So you're just in, uh, South Carolina, uh, just training, um, nonstop to get qualified. And then, uh, once you get to a submarine, it gets really complicated to even calculate that, but um, I would say three years of the eight were really intense, and then the rest of the five were pretty uh, slower paced. But those three years, I was probably gone uh, well over half the time. Um, and if I would have stayed in, it would have been like the next three years would have been the same as the hardest three years. So I got out right before it would have gotten more difficult, basically. Again, it, it cycles because you do, you're attached to the submarine. And that's you do deployments and training, but then you do a shore tour uh, where they, you know, you're at a desk job or, you know, you're um, doing supply or whatever uh, to help the admin side of submarines. So it's wild, yeah. man. Um, my, my uncle who passed away a while back, um, he was on a, um, like a, like a radar sonar ship, like the little, the little ship in the fleet. That's like doing all the, the electronic shit. And yeah, it was like for years, it would be six months on a shore, you know, somewhere in San Francisco where he could actually see his family and see his kid and see his daughter grow up. And then it's like, all right, peace. I'm gone for six months. So yeah. Chris, I'm getting some type of weird feedback. So can you turn off whatever yeah, other mic it is? It's not another mic. I think it's his computer. Oh, okay. He might need to turn his okay. down a little bit. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, if you in can, my computer. Okay, if you just turn maybe like the volume down a little bit or something, I don't know. I don't know what was picking it up because uh, since it's delayed, that means it's it's coming from his end. Got it. Got it. Okay, cool. Okay, I think, I think we're is good that there. is that any better or do I need to do something else? No, I think we're good there. 
Yeah, and it might just be in my mic. I don't think it's affecting like the master recording, so we're good. And the cool thing is we have cameras here, so they'll get like the cool view of me, not the silly zoom view where the balloons keep going up. I don't know. I guess I'm blowing smoke bubbles and the balloons keep coming up on zoom. I don't know what the fuck is going on. Um, so <laughs> I was like, oh, it's a party. <laughs> All right, man. So you decide to get out of the military and you're like, yeah, okay, I've got an amazing um, career in effectively management, which is what being an officer is. And then you've got this background in electric engineering. And you're clearly one of the smartest dudes at the Naval Academy if you ended up on a sub. And they're like, yeah, man, I should go sell some real estate. Because with a <laughs> with with like kind of a bullshit um, certification and almost no training, I can go help people with the biggest financial decision of their life. That is definitely where I want to grow my career. Like, how does that even happen? Yeah, so <laughs> that's kind of a funny one because I even like, as I was basically being held uh, my last few years in the Navy um, because of COVID. I was like, well, I'm going to set myself up even better. So I even got my master's in engineering management as well. <laughs> so this I have a so useless good. master's degree. Yeah. So it even gets a little worse. But um, what really decided it for me was kind of the realization of being at a pivotal moment in my career of uh, – knowing that I wanted to do something uh, that I could be my own. Uh, I was only limited by myself, basically. I can work as much or as little as I want and be rewarded for it. And uh, really, once you get so trained in nuclear engineering and, and subs, you know, there's a lot of career paths that you can go, but they're all pretty, uh, you know, working out a nuclear reactor. There's one close by here in Tennessee, but that's not the lifestyle that I wanted to live. And I was kind of tired of being limited by others, uh, you know, hierarchy or structure or whatever. So I knew I wanted to kind of build something and where the real estate came in was number one, I'm, I'm a numbers guy being an engineer and obviously the numbers in real estate are kind of unlike anything else as far as like a, a personal level. You know, like you said, it's the largest transaction that people make. Um, and to the investing, I knew I wanted to grow something and getting becoming a real estate agent was kind of my uh, first step into kind of doing an investing. So I wanted kind of a quote unquote reliable day job income to get started into investing. Um, and luckily, you know, my wife's been great. She's super supportive. She has her own career that's uh, made that jump a little bit easier. Yeah. Uh, it's easier when the, the unknown. It's easier when the wife's making physician money to like go into a fully commissioned <laughs> entrepreneurial venture, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. That kind of eased the burden on the, the, you know, infant that we had at the time. And Good job, and wife. Everything. Good job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's, she's great. So <laughs> definitely help. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't want to be, uh, I mean, like a, a slave to the, the work cycle, to the work day. And I wanted to be able to, to use my time how I wanted to, because I knew what I was capable of doing um, and how much work I'm willing to put in, basically. And, and 
how did that get like, how did the seed get planted for real estate? Was it, was it a podcast? Did you read rich dad, poor dad, like everybody else? Did you, um, did, did you have parents or family or friends who like, you know, made good property investments back in the day? And they're like, Hey, all, all of a sudden one day I'm a millionaire. Cause I just bought a property and held onto it for 30 years. Or like, what was it that planted the seed that like, yeah, real estate is the way to like wealth creation. And, and this is kind of what I'm interested in. Yeah. So the first thing, uh, my, one of my good friends going through submarines, he actually dragged me to, uh, so he got me to read rich dad, poor dad. And then he dragged me to one of those little, uh, free, uh, seminars on like a Friday afternoon where they get you to try to sign up for like a, another three day training course or something. Um, and that, you know, there's a lot of sales stuff going on in, in those seminars, but the premise and, and everything really got me intrigued. And so I started really looking into it. Um, and so I listened to bigger pockets and I uh, read those books on real estate investing. And then I also was buying and selling just through the nature of moving so much in the Navy um, to where I had the experience of how it works. And, you know, you know, the 6% uh, increase or decrease or commission, like, we're talking big numbers uh, here and there. So yeah. uh, when you're talking about a couple hundred thousand dollar house, um, every percentage point matters. And um, yeah, so I, I thought that was really cool. And that to me was one of those things that it is very much on you to put in the work and the time to build something. No one else is going to really like give you a handout and be like, Hey, you know, come along with me unless it's like your parents or something. Right. Um, you kind of have to go out and seek it. So, um, yeah, I thought it was just really interesting because it kind of fit everything that I wanted. And then also the, the flexibility to get started. But like, <laughs> it's, it's so funny the uh, here in Tennessee, I don't know how it is everywhere else, but you just have to take a, a two week class and take like a test and then another one week class. You, you don't even need a high school diploma. You just need a GED. And By so, the way, that that's more training than most states require. Most states require like it? eight hours of training and then a test. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there you go. But yeah, there's essentially nothing. And so it's just the barrier to entry is super low as far as being an agent. And you don't even need that to be a, an investor. Um, so yeah, it's just really exciting. And, you know, part of it was getting started at a decent time on a couple of the houses that we bought when we moved to, to Knoxville, um, and seeing the potential there that also was like, okay, this is a reality. So kind of stumbled into a few good deals, mm-hmm. um, by just, you know, the market and the economy. But, uh, yeah, now it's kind of just blown up, especially Knoxville here. Um, just been a really thriving, uh, market, a really desirable place for people to move to. And COVID just, uh, made it boom even more with people being able to work remote and whatnot. And, and tell me, you know, as a lifelong <clears throat> Knoxvillian or whatever you guys call yourself, yeah. Knoxvillian, really? Oh, sweet. Yeah. Good guess, Scott. Um, you've probably <laughs> seen that place change in wild, wild ways. So like, from your earliest memory, you know, maybe you know how much your parents bought their house for to like now it's a booming 
kind of like a, a suburb or a second option of like Nashville or something. I mean, I got to imagine a lot yeah. of people from like Nashville and other places, Memphis, who are like priced out. They're moving to a place like Knoxville. Where where were prices when you were a kid 20, 30 years ago? And where like where are they now for comparison in that market? Yeah, so my parents bought a home in 1993 and they still live there. So uh, they didn't teach me much about real estate because they still live in the same house that they <laughs> that we grew up in. Hey, buy and um, hold, man. That's a good lesson. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's, it was brand new construction. They bought it. Uh, it was like, I think it was like $95,000 or something. And now it's worth close to like four and a half or 500. So, um, and most of that, you know, probably half of it has been over the last three years, to be honest. Wow. Um, yeah. So the, it's the whole city itself is just expanded so much. Um, there used to be like a horse farm that was probably like 50 acres and another cow farm that was 35 acres and all of those places in the last decade have gotten bought out in our huge, you know, 200 uh, home subdivision now. And there's a huge, there's still a huge sh- uh, housing shortage here. Uh, they're popping up apartment complexes everywhere. And so, um, and what's, yeah, the, it's just changed so much. What's the economic driver there? Is it the college? Did Amazon open a regional distribution center there? Do you guys have technology or, you know, cause I'm, I'm here in Vegas right now. And like, obviously Vegas for, 70 years, 50 years has been, you know, gaming and tourism, but like they've really made a big push in the last 20 years to have real industry as far as like technology and, you know, infrastructure and supply chain. And like, you know, there's a booming economy here outside of the gaming industry. So what's driving Knoxville, Tennessee and the surrounding area specifically? Yeah. So uh, the biggest thing would be, you know, the university, the world's fair was here. Um, in the 90s and then that kind of set it put us on the map and pretty much since then yeah we you know we did have an amazon distribution center um but uh a lot of it has really just been uh just a desirable place to live and i know that sounds really weird but we experience all four seasons so you kind of get a little bit of everything there's a bunch of lakes nearby the Great Smoky Mountains National Park is, you know, a short 45-minute drive, which is the most visited national park in the country. Um, you know, Gatlinburg. Um, is that where Dollywood is? It, yeah, Dollywood. Shout so, out, shout yeah, out Dolly Parton. Dolly, yeah, she's, she's awesome. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just little things like that. And then um, there's no income tax here in Tennessee. So that's a huge driver for people to move here, especially when you can work remote and make the same money and just pay less taxes on it. Um, uh, and then, yeah, the cost of living was also very low and still is, uh, low compared to the average across the country. And, you know, going into real estate, uh, I know that you're investing in some properties for yourself, but you are also a realtor who helps people buy Mm -hmm. and sell houses, you know, coming into what you expected about the industry, what's been like pleasantly surprising and what's been the biggest like, oh shit surprise. Like, I don't like this part of the business versus like, what's been pleasantly surprising for you? Um... So pleasantly surprising is I'm by nature pretty introverted. And so you just have to put yourself out there and even to like old friends and family and 
if no one knows what you do in this industry, like no one's going to come to you for help. So you kind of have to make sure people know what you're doing. But uh, I thought that was going to be really difficult and I was going to get mixed feedback, but everyone's just been so helpful and it's been actually a very pleasant experience overall um, and just super supportive. Um, and then the, the oh shit moments are basically uh, when you realize like the first couple deals that you do, you really have no idea because even the training <laughs> that you go through is not at all helpful for actual contracts and uh you know, how to help your client with, you know, little things is, okay, we want all these doorknobs replaced because they're broken to uh, bigger things like, oh, the seller wants to close, but they're not willing to follow their part of the deal. Um, And yeah, so just the real like severity of it where it is a binding contract, but a lot of people kind of don't treat it as such, especially the more experienced, like, uh, builders like they'll promise to be done at a certain time and then just keep pushing it back and right. you know they're most yeah most of the time it's you know legitimate reasons because weather or you know supply delay but there's really no consequences to them right. um you know they the buyer can get out of the contract but if they've been waiting uh for their house to be built they kind of have the sunk costs of all that time um so yeah, it's it's hard because it's just a lot of money and it's a lot of people's uh, biggest purchase that they ever make. So I I do feel that there's a little bit of the like science of the deal, you know, the math, the numbers, the contract, whatnot. But then, really, at this point, that stuff can be handled by computer systems. I won't even say AI. It's not even that complex. It's a it's a really fancy spreadsheet and and, and document, right? Um, but, yeah. But there is an art of the deal of like keeping it together, keeping people calm, letting them know that at the end of the day, we're buying a house. Like it's okay. Again, the house is not bleeding. So like as somebody who's more introverted and has more of that technical side of the background and more of like a mind towards, you know, electronic engineering, um, what are you finding as far as like working on the art of the deal and your people skills and stuff? Did, Talk, can you hear me? Yeah, I can oh. hear you. Okay. Um, I hear you. Okay. Yeah. What, what, what have you found on like your people skills or maybe what relevant military experience has helped you with the art of the deal instead of like just the science of learning how to figure out the contract? <clears throat> yeah. So I would say, um, dealing with people as like a manager, as an officer in the Navy from all walks of life has actually really helped me um, understand like you have to meet people where they're at in their life. You know, you can't just approach every single client the same because they all have different needs or all, some are in a really big rush. Some want to take a whole year just seeing a house every weekend because they're bored or (laughs) like they're just, they don't have anything else to do. And uh, they've chosen you as a person to take them on tours. Um, but that, I really got to experience that in the Navy where everyone, you're, you know, they're coming from all walks of life, you know, some very well off, some had nothing. And uh, you have to realize like all that stuff really matters into who people are today and uh, how they'll respond to the stressful parts of the deals and negotiations. And um, so really just handling everyone uh, differently with what they need has been a real cool um, ability that I kind of didn't know I had, but it was basically trained through the Navy. Um, 
kind of as a side effect of uh, dealing with people from all walks of life. And so that, that's been really cool. Um, and then as far as the numbers go, it, it's really cool too, because I get to see the closing disclosures. I, uh, you know, if they feel comfortable, ask them to send it to me so I can help them. And I've helped a couple people, um, either, you know, interest is wrong or whatever. And that's more of a lender, very specific lender thing. Um, but a lot of people have no idea what they're even looking at. And a lot of loan officers do not take the time or lenders don't take the time to explain it. And, you know, especially the younger people I've worked with, just trust everybody that they have their best, um, um, you know, the best will for them. <laughs> and that's not always the case. You know, we're all in it to make, put bread, uh, food on our own table for our families. So uh, that's been super interesting uh, as well to see how I can actually help people with the numbers. Because um, like you said, it, it's a simple spreadsheet, but I don't, I've probably had like a handful of clients that actually run the numbers themselves right. on anything. Um, so I get to kind of take pride in being able to help walk them through and explain, uh, where the numbers are at least coming from. That's awesome. And you know, one of the things that is so impressive about the military is that you can take a 19, 20, 22, 23 year old young man or lady, and you can teach them in a very short time period with training how to operate a $1.5 billion submarine. You know, I was just looking up the cost to build a Los Angeles class submarine. And in 2022 dollars, that would be $1.79 billion with, uh, with training, you know, even the most experienced person on the ship probably has what 15 years experience doesn't seem like enough. Yeah. Right. Um, exactly. so when you go from like the, the super distinct quality, um, just exactly memorialized training process of the Navy to like, Oh, you're a realtor. Go figure it out. Watch some YouTube videos on how to fill out the contract. Where are you supplementing the training, either the sales training, the hot, the soft skills, the hard skills? How are you learning to be a top producing realtor? Yeah. So that, again, it goes, uh, it does actually relate in a very strange way. So on a nuclear reactor, uh, on a submarine, every single question you could possibly have is in a book somewhere, is in a manual. And so to your point, that's the reason why you can train anybody is because you have all the information that you could possibly need. I mean, it's basically a whole library full of books, but there's it's very organized on how to get that information. And so a lot of if a lot of times if you're trying to learn about the submarine and you're on it trying to get qualified, you ask someone else a question, they just say, go look it up. And there's so much value in looking it up yourself. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, a lazy thing at first and you get really frustrated. But after a while, you start realizing when you're looking that one little bit of information up that you need to know, you find out all these other really important things along the way as you're digging through the books and you're in the references. And so how that relates to real estate is all of these contracts, like there's so much verbiage in there for very specific reasons. And there are a few like gray areas, but you know, they're just contracts. And, you know, if it's not in the contract, it's not uh, part of the agreement. And so it either needs to be added into it or taken out of, you know, through use of amendments and whatnot. But it is very uh, relatable to where you can kind of teach yourself in that aspect of, well, what does the contract say? 
And, right. you know, it, at first it's, you know, okay, how do we handle the blinds? Is that part of the house? Is that not part of the house? And uh, it's in the contract. So, or if it's not, you got to add it in there. It's just very specific. Um, and that, that was really cool to kind of be able to teach myself a lot of the things. Um, and now I'm part of a broker that has a lot more training and hands-on and, um, I still kind of prefer to teach myself just because I learned so many other things along the way. Like, um, there's state requirements and I like to go just look up what, instead of asking someone, Oh, like, do you have to have the brokerage phone number on a business card? It's like, well, let me just go look it up. Cause <laughs> like there's rules for all this stuff and it's publicly available. So just look it up. That's awesome, man. I love that. And if you had to give a new agent, you know, top two or three resources, for again, either the art of the deal or the science of the deal, like what would you recommend to a newer agent or somebody who's looking to get into the business? Like what are some things that you're listening to, some things that you've learned, some YouTube channels you're following, podcasts you're listening to? Like what, what's been your, you know, training 101 as a realtor? Um, so a lot of it uh, isn't necessarily real estate related, but just the schedule and the uh, I don't like even calling it motivation, but just the persistence of waking up every day, showing up, and because and doing your job, being there for your clients, responding quickly—that's more than you know, probably eighty to ninety percent of realtors out there because they just either do it part time or they only do it because they can uh, do it whenever they want. So I would say reading books. Uh, so several of the books um you know atomic habits that's just a really classic example of amazing how book. to yeah exactly and but you can apply it to almost any anything in your life but uh as far as like starting out to do real estate there's no one there to hold your hand there's no one there to um tell you what to do day by day so you got to figure it out and you got to come up with a plan and be be persistent in it um and then the other thing is there's only so far that you really can go by yourself. Uh, so as far as training goes, um, and that's what really what my goals are for this year, surrounding myself with other people who are, um, you know, top producers or who are doing it better than me because I want to learn what they're doing, um, both as a realtor and as an investor because mm. um, I have so much to learn. And, you know, hopefully I can share something that I've learned that they have in a longer way. And so just um, I like to do things a lot myself, but then also realizing to a point that's a fault and you got to reach out to people who do it way better than you because there's always going to be someone um, above you in that regard. And um, yeah, I mean, I've been doing it for just a couple of years and there are people who've been doing it a couple decades and right. I'm close with them and they've n no contracts like the back of their hand. So, yeah, that's awesome, man. I love it. And I always like to wrap up with like the same two questions I asked everybody. Uh, we're filming this at the beginning of 2024. Uh, what are you most looking forward to in 2024, whether it's personally or professionally or whatnot? And uh, then number two, what's your favorite movie and why? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I'll have to put some thought into the movie one real quick. And by the way, I have a follow-up question just because of your expertise. Are there any submarine movies that are actually accurate? Like Hunt for Red October, you know, Das Boot, like any any submarine movies that are actually good? 
Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I mean, <laughs> there a lot of them. It's kind of like a space movie or like sci-fi where you could just poke holes in them, but they are entertaining and they're you know ninety percent. But since I've lived on a submarine, I'm focusing on the ten percent that's wrong, <laughs> and it kind of ruins it for me. But I try not to ruin it for others. <laughs> all right, all right, cool. So, what are you most looking forward to in 2024? And favorite movie and why? Um, so most looking forward to in 2024, I would definitely have to say just personal development as far as growing as, um, you know, an investor, a businessman, but also as a a father and a husband and just trying to balance the, um, all that. Cause I got two young kids and an amazing wife that I, you know, owe everything to as well. Um, so I'm most looking forward to just being able to provide for the family and um, becoming the best version of myself through the day-to-day, you know, minute-by-minute decisions um, that I'm making and always having that uh, in the back of my mind as a guide. And favorite movie, man. Um, that's, that's, wish I came prepared for this one. Well, while, while, you're, while your subconscious is working on that, I'll give you a resource. Yeah. Shout, shout out to okay. my buddy, John Roman. He runs a mastermind group and a, and a free podcast called Front Row Dads. And it's all about uh, fathers who own businesses, not business owners who are trying to be dads. And they address this very thing, right? Like the pillars of like, hey, I'm trying to go through wealth creation, but I'm also trying to show up for my kid. And I'm also trying to yeah. be a good husband. And I'm also trying to stay healthy. And I'm also trying to like build my wealth and legacy, right? And so, um, yeah, I think uh, I think you would really resonate with the topics on Front Row Dads. Even he's done hundreds of episodes, but even going all the way back to the beginning and and starting at the beginning because uh, he's just had some bangers of an interview uh, over health and like emotional intelligence as a father and balancing wow. being an entrepreneur and then you know having to come home stressful when things are good when things are bad when things are horrible you know and it's it's he he's a great resource for young dads who are also business owners so front row dads uh with john vroman you have to check it out um hopefully i stalled long enough for your subconscious to work on 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 a favorite movie or one of your favorite movies yeah um i was actually so into what you're saying and just to kind of touch on that while my subconscious is still thinking about a movie um yeah my uh three-year-old son he just turned three coming home to him even after like a deal fell through or some like a really stressful time and he you know he's oblivious to all of this and he's just happy to see me and it's like so grounding um that i don't want to ever forget that feeling and so i definitely want to um look into that uh front row dad's uh group and everything that's that's such a cool concept that I think we need more of in society, but also personally, I, I definitely, uh, aspire to do that. So, um, by the way, the, the gut punch is coming because I'll never forget my, my son. He's just, he's about to turn, um, eight and he was probably about four or five and we were out like a sushi dinner and he was playing with my phone, like not playing on the phone or watching anything, just like playing with the physical thing, like flipping it upside down and whatnot. And like just playing with the phone case. And, uh, and I looked over, I'm like, Hey buddy, like you should probably finish your food there. And he like put his hand up and he put the phone to his ear. He's like, dad, I'm on a meeting call. And although it was, although it was funny in the moment, and we got a good laugh. Like, talk about feeling like a piece of shit as a father. Because yeah. I was like, well, that's learned behavior. And how many times have I cut off this little boy who's just, like, looking up to me as his hero because I was on a very important meeting call, you know? Um, 
And I'm just like, oh man, like lots to work on. And I, I remember calling my uh, my my pod because I'm in that front row dad's mastermind group. I remember calling my pod and be like, hey man, like I just got kicked in the gut and like bowed over by a five year old. And I told them the story, and they're like, oh, every, everybody could relate at some level. So I did. I didn't feel uniquely horrible, but I felt pretty horrible. Yeah. Wow. I can imagine. Yeah. That I'm sure that day's coming. Um, but it's a good uh, gut check too, like you said. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think the best I could do for movies, because uh, we, my my family's big into like all the Marvel movies, so I'll have to say Endgame, um, just for how it ties everything together. It's epic. Um, yeah, for sure. Just one of the ones that'll always be uh, a go-to for us. So. Did Did you miss out on like eight years of like? what was in the social zeitgeist because you were like on a submarine and like serving the country and do it even when you're on shore leave it's like i'm sure you're trying to get in family and stuff like there's no time to just like watch the walking dead right yeah and so two uh quick very brief stories first is i mean we basically had to disconnect our facebook social media so i wasn't keeping up with anybody back here back home um, while I was gone and deployed, even at the Naval Academy. Uh, so that was a real struggle moving back and getting back into my sphere um, that I was working with. Because that's the benefit of working where you've lived as a realtor. Because you already you know, have people that know and trust you and your family and all these things. But I had been just completely absent for really 12 years. Because it's 8 plus the Naval Academy time. Um, and then the second story was... Uh, I, on one of the deployments, we actually were gone um, during the uh, 2016 uh, presidential election. And I'll never forget, we when we went underwater, uh, Hillary Clinton was like uh, basically guaranteed to win. And then, uh, you know, obviously what uh, <laughs> ended up happening was Trump won. But when they sent us the message and told us who the new commander in chief was going to be, everyone thought it was a complete joke <laughs> because <laughs> like when we had gone, you know, last we knew in the world, like Hillary Clinton was up by however much she was. Yeah. And she was the heir apparent. Just, yeah. And it was all just, you know, media and all these other things, but it was just, that's how oblivious you are to what's going on in the world. And, um, you know, you just get messages every once in a while to kind of give you a, a little snapshot, but yeah, that was, that was kind of very, <laughs> uh mind-blowing that's wild man well hey yeah. i i just want to say thanks for your time being on the show and um i think you add a lot of value to realtors that might be looking at like getting started or just thinking through why they might be in this career so i appreciate you uh i think i made an introduction to ernest you guys have already met he's a he's a wonderful resource for wholesaling and flipping and we're gonna have him on the show soon here so um yeah man just want to say thank you and um, I appreciate you and uh, just have a great year, man. Crush it. Family, life, health, business. Like you're going to do awesome things. I, I know this because Trier spoke highly of you. So I know you're going to do awesome things. Hey, thank you so much, Scott. This has been awesome. Thanks for making all the connections you have. And yeah, keep uh, putting out that good word. It's awesome. It's a Perfect, lot of value man. in it. We'll talk to you soon. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't be doing my job as a as a real estate mortgage coach and as a loan officer. I didn't say, hey, if you get a deal out there that your primary guy can't figure out, um, sa save my contact information if you need a backup lender. Yeah, absolutely. We'll do, Scott. Appreciate it. All right, man. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks.